Let's pray together, can we? God, we acknowledge that is a very hard prayer to pray. At least it should be. To say, here is my life. Will you speak what is true? In saying that, we, we admit we don't have it together, that we are often wrong. You are just and we are not. You are kind and merciful and we would rather judge. You are holy and we are sinful. We stand in complete need of you. Left to our own, we will make a wreck out of our lives. And so we, this morning, confess we need you. So here are our lives. Take them and use them. We love you. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Well, welcome this morning. How's everybody doing? Oh, come on. We can do better. How's everybody doing? There we go. It's the 4th of July. Everybody gets tomorrow. Nice vacation. So yeah, we moved into our house this weekend. We're officially North Canton residents now, which is cool. Uh, it's even cooler for my parents because uh, we're not living at their house anymore. So they actually got a good night's sleep. My dad didn't wake up with our uh, eight-year-old in his face at six o'clock this morning. So uh, we are happy to be here. And I, I want to really quick, before we get into the message this morning, I, I want to say thank you on behalf of Mandy and our kids. Um, you guys have been so welcome these past couple of months. It's been two months to the day that we've been here, which is like that. It's crazy. And I just want to say thank you. You guys have been, have been awesome, and, and we're very, very thankful to be here. Absolutely. Um, I'm lucky I found my shoes this morning because our house is full of boxes and stuff is kind of sprinkled everywhere. So um, I, I, I kind of rolled out of bed and I found a cup of coffee. That was like essential number one. And it's like, if I get that going, then I'm going to be happy. Um, so yeah, we are, we're in the midst of figuring out where all of our stuff is inside of our house. So if anybody has seen the hardware from my boys' bunk beds, I would love to talk with you. I need to find that. So, Well, I want to start out this morning by, uh, by telling a story. He was scared out of his mind that night. So he started running. He ran faster and faster and faster, but no, ha- no matter how hard he ran, he could not run what he had become, a runaway slave and a thief. It was about 120 miles from his master's house in the city of Colossae to where he was heading in Ephesus. That's roughly the distance from where we are here to Columbus. It was a hard four-day walk, three if he ran, and Onesimus was running. He couldn't go back. He couldn't turn around. He couldn't stop. He had to find Paul. Paul, the one man who could plead his case, the one man who he felt could help him. He knew that if he could just get to Paul, his master's best friend, that Paul would be able to plead his case. Onesimus had heard his master say that Paul was in prison in Ephesus for spreading the strange teachings of that Jewish rabbi. Something about the kingdom of God and the gospel of grace, he didn't quite understand that yet. He thought if he could just get to Paul, maybe he could be forgiven for what he'd done. Maybe he could be free. Meanwhile, back in Colossae, Philemon knew that something was up. 
Philemon was a businessman. Uh, as someone whose his whole life depended on agriculture, he employed a number of servants. He was an influential man in his town. As one of the largest landowners, he was a businessman. Everybody knew Philemon. Philemon was a Gentile, a Greek, and at first the strange teachings of this Jewish rabbi seemed distant to him too. But through Paul, Philemon began to understand that God had sent his son to be the savior of the world. And so Greek religion and philosophy and idolatry began to fade away as the cross came into clearer focus into Philemon's life. He was excited and eager to share his faith with everybody who worked for him, everybody he knew. If, if God would just show him the way to go, maybe they could be forgiven for what they've done. Maybe they could be free. Well, we're in the midst of a sermon series called Saturate. And if you've been with us the last month, uh, if you've been following along, there's kind of this unofficial theme that's sort of emerging from this series, and it's this. Bloom where you're planted. Have you guys felt that? Through a lot of these last messages, I think we've got like five or six of them now, it's this idea that following Jesus starts with looking what's right in front of you. More importantly, who is right in front of you? It's a lot of what we mean by when we say saturate, and this morning is no exception. We're going to talk about business this morning. But like all other aspects of society that we're looking at in this series, I think business is way more present in my life than I even realize. We are all steeped in it. Every time I fill up my car with gas, every time I go to Starbucks and order a cup of coffee, which is way more often than I probably should, every time I order a meal out to eat and leave a tip, which you absolutely should, every time I swipe my card at clicks, and I still call it clicks. You can call it Acme if you want, but I still call it clicks. Every time I, I pay any bill, every time I, I engage in business, I am taking this business life and pushing it out through my discipleship, who I am as a disciple of Christ. I can't shake it. I can't do without it. I can't get away from it. And no matter how much tiny house nation tries to convince me otherwise, I have to engage in business. You're laughing because you know what tiny house nation is, and you've thought the same thing I have. So this morning, we're going to look at a story about two men. Two men who, like everybody else in this room, found themselves steeped in an institution that they did not create, that was not created for their good, but they were nonetheless a part of. And these men redefined that institution for the glory of God. So this morning we're going to ask one question, just one. What place does the gospel have in business? And I think it's an important question because it is impossible to follow Jesus and segment your life. Either he has all of you or he has none of you. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Philemon. Now I'm going to say this. It's really, really, really unfair for me to ask you to turn to the book of Philemon because nobody knows where that is. So if you would, there is no shame. No one's going to think you're not spiritual or whatever. Just turn to your table of contents. That's what it's there for. Uh, or if you'd like, you can follow up on the screen. Philemon is uh, just after the three T books in the New Testament. So First and Second Timothy and then Titus. Uh, if you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Philemon is probably one, maybe two pages in your Bible. Uh, it's 25 verses. It's one chapter. 
And if you're looking for like a place to start memorizing scripture, just so you can tell people you've memorized the whole book of the Bible, <laughs> this is a good one to start with. So Philemon, um, it's going to be up on the screen. And if you don't have a copy of God word, God's word, that's okay. There's, there's one under the chair in front of you. So Philemon, everybody there, hope so. Short book. You're probably going to pass it the first time through. So Philemon, let's just start out looking at Philemon verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in your house. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Those first seven verses are just basically the biblical version of the top of an email. All right? You've got your to line, you've got your from line, you've got a couple carbon copies thrown in there, right? and you have a subject line. Now, if, if you haven't read much of the New Testament, you need to be aware, just a quick heads up. Paul's subject lines are really long, all right? like really long. He would have a real tough time with modern email etiquette. Right? Paul has a lot to say, but you get the idea. Like a lot of the New Testament, Philemon gets its name from its recipient. In this case, a wealthy landowner in the city of Colossae named Philemon. Way to go. And if the, if the city named Colossae sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you know that Paul wrote another book to the church in Colossae, and that letter is called? Oh, guys, you're great. Now, even though Philemon follows Colossians in the order of the books of the Bible, it was probably written first. And not only do we, do we know that because, it's, because of what it's talking about, but because it gives us some important biographical information about the key players in that church. So we already know Philemon, and we'll know Onesimus, who we'll get to in a little bit. Paul is also involved in this church, although he hadn't visited. But the key player right now, the one who's on center stage, is this guy named Philemon. What do we know about him? Take a look in verse 5, where he says, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So Paul is basically saying, boy, Philemon, you love God and you love your church. Philemon is a good man. And then secondly, take a look at verse 6. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. So he's, Philemon is interested in sharing his faith. He wants to know what does it mean to actually live as a witness for Christ in this pagan community called Colossae. And I'm a businessman. What does that mean? So he may be a little bit timid about it. And anybody else ever kind of feel that way? He wants to share his faith. He just doesn't quite know how to do it. And so, so Paul's encouraging him and affirming that in him. And then verse 7, he says, I, this is Paul. Paul says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So simply, all that means is that Philemon and his wife, Aphia, carbon copied above, are great hosts. They host a house church, roughly the size of one of our missional communities here at the chapel. 
and, 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 and the saints, these believers in Colossae, have been really refreshed through their ministry. Now, interesting side note, that word ref- refresh, Paul's doing something really cool there. The city of Colossae was known for its excellent, really cold, refreshing drinking water. And so when Paul says, you are a refreshment to the saints in your city, what he's basically saying is, Philemon, you are the very embodiment of what it means to be a Christian in Colossae. You are refreshing. It's like if you or I went up to Cleveland today, and I said, man, I love how you take it all the way to game seven, and you never give up. Sorry, I had to kind of slip that in there. Ryan's gone this weekend, so quick Cavs reference. You would know exactly what I meant if I said that. That's what Paul's doing here for Philemon. So he says, you have a great relationship, and you're doing a great work, and God is doing great work through you. I'm so proud of you, my brother. These first seven verses are all affirming what God is doing in his life. But Philemon has a problem. In fact, by the time he receives this letter, his problem is literally staring him in the face. And so Paul leans in. Take a look at verse 8. Accordingly, now that's Paul's way of saying, brace yourself, bud. In light of everything I've just told you, everything that God is doing in your life, accordingly, here it comes. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Now he doesn't mean biological child there. He means a spiritual child, that, that he, someone that he introduced to Jesus. Formerly, verse 11, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Now get this, verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. And Philemon's jaw drops. His runaway slave has been sheltered and introduced to Jesus by his faith hero, Paul. Paul takes those first seven verses to affirm the work of God in Philemon's life, and now Paul wants to extend that work of God into the hardest, toughest place to reach, Philemon's business relationship, namely his relationship with his runaway slave, Onesimus. This puts Philemon in a really tough place. Because in one hand, he hears that and he says, oh, welcome him back like a, like a beloved brother. Right, the Christian thing to do. Got it. But on the other hand, he hears that and he says, wait, I've got to upend this whole business thing I've got going? Mm, I don't know about that. Very tough choice to make. 
I remember when I was 12, um, my dad took me away for a weekend at my grandparents' cabin in southern Ohio. They have a cabin on a lake, and it's where I learned to fish and swim. We'd spend all, time, all kinds of time there as a family uh, throughout years growing up. And my dad had planned this weekend away for us, and it was awesome, right? He, he's a great dad, so he prepared, you know, hey, here's what we're going to eat. Here's what we're going to do every day. Here's some stuff to talk about. And bonus points, this was the trip where I got to do the cool man stuff. I got to drive the boat. <laughs> I got to chop the wood. Yes. I got to start the fire. Right? This is the stuff that 12-year-old boys dream about. I was like, yes, finally, I get to do this whole thing. But the biggest thing I remember was that it was my turn to unhitch the boat from the dock. And I remember it because it did not go so well for me. So here's what happened. Pontoon boat secured to the dock. It's got three hitches, one in the front, one in the middle, and one in the back. Yeah, kind of like that. So I go up to the front. Bingo. All good to go. Kind of go back on the dock. Go back to the last one. Bingo. Middle one. Foot on the boat, foot on the dock. Uh-oh. And with the wind starting to pick up, my genius 12-year-old brain thought the best thing I can do is put one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock. And you can see where this is going. I tried to stay like this as long as I possibly could, but it wasn't long until I was up to my neck in green, stinky, slimy lake funk. That's where Philemon is here. He's at this place where he's going, I'm feeling really uncomfortable, Paul, and I don't know what to do, but I've got to make a decision. He could continue with the status quo, keep things as they are, you know? Onesimus comes back, he could treat him like a slave because that's Roman law. That's what all the other landowners are doing. That's his legal right to do that under that system with one-third of the known world in slavery at that time. Philemon could have taken the easiest road and said, gotcha, I'm gonna bring him back, he's gonna go back to work, and he's gonna, I'm gonna treat him like dirt because he ran away. I'm not gonna forgive him his debts. I'm gonna make it harder on him because that's my right as his master. He could do that. Or he could take the harder road and welcome him back as a beloved brother. You feel the tension that that must have put in him? Because everybody's going to know it. He knows that's not God's plan. He knows what God's plan is. And he knows he needs to welcome him back as a beloved brother. Because God doesn't want Philemon to perpetuate his relationship with Onesimus. He wants him to elevate his relationship with Onesimus. It's like Paul is saying, Philemon, I know you've got a lot at stake here. I know you've got a lot of skin in the game. But the gospel changes everything, absolutely everything. Work isn't just a place for you anymore. Work isn't just work for you anymore. Your vocation is now part of what it means to be obedient to the lordship of Christ because it's impossible to segment your life and follow Jesus. Either he has all of you or he has none of you. So you and I, when we became Christians, we lost our right to cling to the dock. That's not an option anymore. We can't keep our little corner of our lives for ourselves anymore, no matter how comfortable it is. Now, is, it, is, is being comfortable a sin? No, not necessarily. But in my experience of walking with Jesus, obedience is rarely comfortable. 
And it usually demands more than what I want to give. And in my flesh, I don't like that. And when it comes time to allowing the gospel to transform how I view business, every swipe of a debit card, every time I engage someone on the other end of a phone line or the counter, I start to feel really stretched because I want my way and I want them to know it. And that is not the work of Christ in me. Paul is asking Philemon to perform a very difficult theological exercise here. He isn't just saying, hey, when Onesimus gets back, be nicer to him. Treat him nice. Welcome him back as your buddy. He says, harder, leave the way that you used to think about your work, your servants, your income, all of that on the dock and get on the boat. Redefining vocation as something under the authority of Christ is what some, something that Jesus wants to do in you and in me. That's part of what discipleship means. So what does that look like? To redefine business as something under the authority of Christ. I don't want to answer that quite yet because we've got something else to consider here, someone else to consider here. Yes, the gospel transforms the way we view our work, but it also transforms the way we view our world. Put yourself in Onesimus' shoes. Here he was, a runaway slave hoping to find asylum in a larger city and hoping to win the friendship of a mutual friend of his master, and in so doing, to be forgiven a debt, something he stole from, from his master Philemon, and then also to have, him, have his slate wiped clean, to be completely free, and say, I'm done. That's what he's hoping for. He was hungry for forgiveness, and he was hungry for freedom. And boy, did he get it. Just not in the way that he thought. The details aren't clear, but at some point, Paul introduces Onesimus to the person of Christ through the bars of an Ephesian jail cell. And Onesimus' life changes like that. Here's how this would have gone. Onesimus flees from Philemon's house in Colossae. He finds Paul in Ephesus. And at some point, Paul introduces him to Jesus. Paul learns Onesimus' story. And then he writes this letter back to Philemon. But then something happened that Onesimus would have had a very, very hard time with. Paul tells him that, yes, I'm going to ask Philemon to forgive you your debts. Yes. Yes, I'm going to say, welcome him back as a beloved brother. Double yes. But then the hammer falls, and he hears this. I'm sending you back. And Onesimus just crumbles. And he says, seriously? Back? You're sending me back? You had the opportunity, Paul, to ask Philemon for my complete forgiveness. I could be free. And you're sending me back into the institution where I am taken advantage of, where I am exploited. This institution that was not meant for my good. And you're sending me back. You had the power to say no. And you're sending me back. Why would you do that? That is the central question of this little letter. Why should we saturate our world when we can hide away from our world as Christians? Why should we build relationships when it's easier just to kind of stay cloistered in our own little comfort zone? Why should we seek restoration and reconciliation when it's easier just to have our own way and be right? 
Why should we re-enter institutions that are not meant for our good? Because the gospel doesn't call us to eradicate our culture. The gospel calls us to saturate our culture. And those are two very different things. Christians don't storm the gates, picket events, or sign petitions or protest. That kind of stuff is easy to do. But what the gospel says is I want you to do something ultimately way harder, way more countercultural, way more intuitive, and ultimately way more satisfying and way more impact on eternity. I want you to enter into those institutions and transform them from the inside out by warming hearts to the things of Christ. Do you see how that's a totally different game plan? That turns everything on its head. The river flows a completely different direction when we look at our culture and our world like that. And that is what Paul is calling these two men to do. Bringing our lives increasingly under the authority of Christ means that every one of us ought to talk, think, and pray, and discuss, how do I fill up my gas tank to the glory of God? That's a serious question. How do I swipe my card at the store? to the glory of God. How about this one? How do I pay my mortgage payment to the glory of God? Or even worse, how do I pay my taxes to the glory of God? Because we're gonna do it anyway and we need to think about how do we do that as people who have said, I am a disciple of Christ. And that's the best part, I think, is that we lean into those institutions not because we necessarily want to or because it's easy or because it's convenient, but because we are disciples of Christ. It's part of our identity. It's part of who we are, and we can't, ex- we can't separate that. We can't segment our business life from our spiritual life. It doesn't work that way. Take a look at uh, uh, verse 15 again. Verse 15 and 16 are, to me, like the hinge of this whole little book. I love these verses. He says, Paul, this is Paul, writing to Philemon, for perhaps this is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant. You see how Paul just gets rid of that whole thing? He's like, yeah, you can call your institution whatever you want. I don't care. But what Jesus looks at this guy is he says, no longer as a bondservant, more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see how Paul just gets under this whole institution and says, no, 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 no. What's most important about this guy that's coming back to you is that he is a Christian. I don't know if Philemon ever tried to introduce Onesimus to Christ while he was in his house or not. But when he hears this, I imagine he goes, oh man, did I miss an opportunity? I'm not going to miss another one. Onesimus was supposed to be the living incarnation of what Paul would write to the Galatian churches where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. What he means is that the whole whole playing field is leveled. No one has advantage. That means that the most important thing about you or me isn't our education or our degrees. It isn't our position. It isn't our title. It isn't our office space. It isn't how much we, don't, we make or don't make. It isn't the size of our house, the size of the car, or any of that. The most important thing about you and me and everybody that we see is that we are souls in need of Christ. That is the only thing that matters. And so Paul is sending Onesimus back as a living incarnation of that verse. 
And that is a very powerful, beautiful way to image the gospel forward. For us, that means that the relationships that run in and out of our business life are there intentionally because they are starting places where the kingdom of God can take root in your life. There's no random cashier. So what does this mean for us? How do we bring our business lives under the authority of Christ? I'm gonna give us four, just four quick ideas, okay? So if you're taking notes, here they are. Here's the four. One, look beneath the transaction. Look beneath the transaction. If business can be reduced to a series of transactions, and maybe in, in some element it can be, then, then those transactions can be reduced to a potential encounter that God wants to use for his purposes, You've been there. You've been at a table at a restaurant where you can tell that the server is having a horrible day. You ever been there? You can just tell, right? This is not a transaction. You are not paying for a burger. You are a soul bumping, against, bumping up against another soul. Now, I don't know if that person needs Jesus or not, but you've got him. You've got a message that you get to share. Look beneath the transaction. A few ways to do that. Here's a couple quick ideas. One, use people's names. Do you notice how many people in the service industry wear name tags? Use people's names. It's going to blow them away. Whether you're at a restaurant and they've got a name tag or you're at Ace Hardware and they've got a name tag. I did it yesterday when I was buying a dowel rod. It was awesome. Or how about over the phone, right? Oh, boy, here we go. I'm setting up internet in my house this week, so I'm prepared to wait on hold for a very, very long time. So you know how to pray for me. But have you ever noticed, though, when you pick up the phone and you have to call somebody about a customer service, they say, hey, you know, my name is Bob. Thank you for calling so-and-so. How can I help you? Use their name throughout the conversation. And you say, well, I can't even understand their name half the time. <laughs> That's fine. Ask them to repeat it because then it's all of a sudden you matter to me. You're not just some, some person on the other end of the line that I need to win my argument with. You're somebody that I can have a spiritual conversation with. Whole different ballgame. It'll blow them away. Another idea here as to how to look beneath the transaction. Pray for people when you're out to eat. This is so easy to do when you're out to eat. I have a friend named John. And I've had dozens of meals with John over, over the years. And, and every time he does this, it's awesome. Just as the server lands the last plate on the table. And before they go... Does everything look all right to you? John gets in first, and he says, hey, Lauren, we're going to pray for our meal in a little bit, and I was just curious, is there anything I can be praying about for you today? Now, before you go, nope, I'm not doing that. Nope, too weird. Let me tell you, John has never been turned down. Not once. People are blown away when you ask if you can pray for them. Here's the third thing while we're in here, just this underneath, look beneath the transaction. Here's the third thing. Just don't be a jerk. Can I say that? Just don't be a jerk. Because what happens with me is when I'm on hold for an hour, I know what's happening in my mind. As soon as that phone picks up, I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to go, I've been here for an hour and i got stuff to do, don't you know? And all of a sudden, any potential you have to tell them about a loving God who is merciful, vaporizes. So the question then, which do I want more? Do I want to be right or do I want to introduce somebody to Jesus? Sometimes you can't be both, and you got to pick. Second one, 
Look beneath the transaction. Here's another way that we can bring our business lives under the authority of Christ. Stay humble. Whether you're a Philemon type sitting on top of the org chart or you're an Onesimus at the bottom of the org chart, here's one rule that works for all of us, and it's this. Influence follows humility. You've worked for jerk bosses, right? And they're not humble. But maybe sometimes as a consumer, which is true of everybody in this room, we're all consumers to some extent, we haven't been humble either. So the best way to carry a relationship forward infused with this idea of the kingdom of God and saturating is to say, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to lead that way. And I'm going to lead on my knees. I'm going to give up my rights. I'm going to give up my status. And I'm going to say, I'm in it for you, not for me. I'm going to serve. Now, quick word, just quick aside. Lest you think this is only for CEOs and managing director types, I want to talk about stay-at-home moms for a second because I'm married to one. Stay-at-home moms, you guys serve 24 hours a day. And just by way of saying this, I think there's a whole lot of CEOs that could learn a few lessons in leadership from stay-at-home moms. You serve day in and day out. And here's my only word to you in this, okay? Never underestimate the power of cumulative influence. Influence over the long haul. I really believe that, and you're going to hear more about this next week when when Dan preaches, I really believe that parents and families, and moms in particular, have phenomenal ability to impact our culture for the gospel because they're in it for the long haul. Nobody stays in a job for 18 years anymore. But your kids stay in your house a minimum of 18 years, roughly, right? Moms, you have a phenomenal opportunity. So serve. Practice, or stay humble. Third thing, so look beneath the transaction, stay humble. And then the third one is to practice generosity. Unencumbered generosity is a rare thing. We like generosity with strings attached a lot of times. That's not generosity, that's a transaction. Unencumbered generosity. I found that generosity for me is almost like an antidote for being this consumptive, materialistic person that I can be and that all of us can really be if we, if we, if we let our guard down. And so rather than try to satisfy our, ourselves with the stuff that we get, let's reverse the flow of that river and let's start giving stuff away. A couple ideas. One, have a free garage sale. I'm dead serious. Open your garage door, bring out the tables, and have one sign, all stuff free. You want to get to know your neighbors? <laughs> but it helps to just say, like, I'm not, I'm not interested in this stuff. It's just stuff to me. Here's another one, and I'm going to sound really spiritual because I'm talking about something that I have to do, but this is me, okay, because I know, I know that this beast lurks in, in, in the dark for me too. So I've imposed um, a rule on myself, and I call it the 15-shirt rule. At no point can there be any more than 15 shirts in my closet. And that sounds really stupid, but for me, I just say, because I, I know that I'm going to just start collecting stuff, right? So if I happen to get a shirt, I give one away. Now, don't go buying me a shirt hoping I'm going to change my wardrobe, okay? It doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> but that's just me, and you probably have something like that you could do too. And here's another one while we're at it, to be generous. Buy gift cards. Buy gift cards and keep a few in your wallet. You have no idea what a $20 gas card could mean to somebody. Or if you get in a conversation with somebody who looks like an absolutely exhausted parent, give them a $10 gift card to Starbucks or something and just say, here, go have a date night on me. 
And while you're at it, introduce Jesus to them because then they're going to know that that free gift card, just like the gift of salvation, is free and there's no strings attached to this thing. It is free. It's yours. Just take it and enjoy it. Fourth thing. Look beneath the transaction. Stay humble. Practice generosity. And the fourth one is learn contentment. This one's harder. We are by nature people who are hardwired to not be satisfied with something. We are hardwired to be satisfied by someone. The nature of our discontentment is not acquisitional. That's not the answer. It is relational. And when I get my eyes off of stuff I need to get and get my eyes on building a relationship with my Heavenly Father, oh man, your business life gets rocked because all of a sudden you're not in this, in this, in this pursuit of more and how, how high can we go, how fast can we go, up and to the right, up and to the right, because that really is not the chief goal. Learning to be content is learning to stand up straight on a hill that is increasingly sharp and steep. It's a hard discipline to learn. Augustine had this great quote where he says, our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. Isn't that great? There's no amount of stuff that can fill that up in me. Nothing. We got a big hole when it can only be filled by Christ. So you can imagine Philemon sitting there reading this letter. Probably didn't take him more than three or four minutes. And Onesimus is standing in front of him having just hand-delivered the letter to him. Onesimus watching Philemon's face as he reads line by line. His brow furrows as he starts to realize what Paul's asking him to do. And Onesimus knows, in first century culture, this guy has the right to demand death. He could take me out and have me stoned right there. He could have me out for a beating. He could punish me. And Onesimus just says, okay, God, I'm, I'm trusting you on this one. And then with the full weight of beloved brotherhood hanging on him, Philemon folds the letter up. You know, maybe he hands it to somebody or he puts it down. And he looks at Onesimus, eyeball to eyeball. And he says, welcome home, beloved brother. But that's not the best part. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, two years later, you know what he calls Onesimus there? Beloved brother. It's awesome. For the last two years, Onesimus has grown in the gospel in this, in this, this house that says, I'm not going to segment my life. We're going to do this the right way. My business is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I can't separate those. These two men redefined that institution for the glory of God, and I want to join them. How about you? I want to close with one, one story, and the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song. This is an old song. It's one of those oldie but a goodie songs. And I want to tell the story because I, I, I think it beautifully illustrates this idea of, of bringing business under the authority of Christ. So this song is called Take My Life and Let It Be. I told you it was an oldie but a goodie. And it was written by somebody named Frances Havigal. Okay, Frances was a professional musician in her day, and she was a good one. And so she would fill concert halls. People would come and hear her sing and play and, and she realized that no matter how many concert halls she filled, no matter how much attention she got, how many tickets she sold, it was all a wash if she couldn't share Jesus. 
So she put pen to paper and she said, take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. And then she took a look around and she had a lot of jewelry that she had accumulated over the years and and it was stuff that people had given her and and stuff that she had earned and and not that it was any of it bad, but she took a look at it and she said, you know, what would it be like if I just gave this stuff away? So she packed up a box and she said, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. And then later she wrote to a friend, And she said in that letter, she said, I've never packed a box with such joy. I don't think God's calling you to that. Maybe he is, but probably not. But I think we could ask ourselves the question, are there any points in my life that are segmented? Are there points that I've I've pushed off to the side and said, nope, God, you can have most of me. Mm, I want this part. When we look at our business lives, because we're all in business to some extent, when we look at our business lives, are there parts where we say, mm, no, mm, you're not, you're not going to have that part. I need that part, God. That's for me. I think it's incredibly freeing to sit with just our palms open or our heart open and say, God, would you just take it? Take it. I don't, I don't need it. Take it. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. God, again, this is a hard prayer to pray. And um, it should be a hard prayer to pray. It's something that we, we shouldn't say lightly. It's something we shouldn't say and, and not mean it. But God, I ask, would you just come into our lives, evaluate, show us where the dark spots are, because we've all got them, and we don't want them. We want to give them over to you. God, no matter where we are today, whether we're ready to give those over or we still want to cling on to them, would you just begin to to loosen up the edges? Would you just begin to loosen up those places in our life that, that we've tried to keep? You gave it all for us. And we don't want to hang on to anything. God, we love you. We're so very thankful. All God's children said, amen.